This is Richard Cloutier Reports on 680 CJOB. Lawrence Ellerby opens his chapter of the book Shrunk Crime and Disorders of the Mind with these two sentences. So what do you do when a sexual, sexually sadistic, mentally disordered homicide offender is released in your community? You manage the risk. Dr. Lawrence Ellerby conducts psychological risk assessment, provides treatment to men who commit violent and sexual crimes, and he is with us on 680 CJOB. I remember this crime back, I guess it was, yeah, early 1990s. Um, A 17-year-old woman was found on the outskirts of the city, and a Crime Stoppers tip identified Darren William Smith as the suspect. What did he do? Well, in terms of the particular crime, and there was a lead-up to that we can get into uh, later, is he had an intent. He wanted to find somebody who he could uh, essentially abduct, that he could assault physically, that he could take their life, and that he could also sexually assault. He was filled with a lot of anger. He was filled with a lot of extraordinary rage. He was fueled by a fantasy life that was immersed in deviant sexual thought and violent preoccupation, and he was on a mission. And uh, unfortunately, on that night, he succeeded. This was a teenager that he had picked up. He cruised the streets looking for a potential target, found somebody who was willing to take a ride, He'd made a number of attempts to do this before. He'd practiced and uh, rehearsed this. He had a specific location that he had chosen to take the person to. According to the police investigation, there appears to have been a struggle that ensued en route when he did not drive her to her stated destination and and took her out of the city, uh, where he uh, slowed down at the location he wanted to go to. She attempted to escape. Um, He used his vehicle to stop her from escaping, got out, strangled her. Um, and after she, uh, after he killed her, uh, engaged in post-mortem violent and sexual behavior with her. He was found guilty of second-degree murder. He was charged with second-degree murder. He was found guilty of manslaughter, which was quite even extraordinary. Even a lesser charge. Even a lesser charge. And I think a lot of that was uh, Darren had been identified as having an intellectual disability, so his cognitive functioning and, uh, and thought process was impaired. And they didn't know about the level of deviance and forethought that had gone into this crime. When did you come into the story? I came into the story down the road. Uh, Darren had been sentenced. He had been uh, incarcerated. He'd been through uh, an intensive federal correctional treatment program. And... Uh, he was still considered a very high-risk offender, and he was still perseverating on violence and very uh, excited and, uh, uh, and aroused by uh, physical violence, sexual violence, thoughts of killing. And the senior psychologist at the time recognized that to have any chance of intervention and risk management in this case, there needed to be someone working with him on a long-term basis and someone who could bridge that gap from the time he was in the institution, to his release to the community. Because being convicted of manslaughter, you're not behind bars 
forever. You do get out, and if someone is illustrating these tendencies, something has to be done. Absolutely, and that's one of the important things, right, that I think we often focus on the punishment side of things. And the vast majority of individuals who commit crimes have a release date, and they'll be coming back into our community. And we have to choose, do we want them coming back into our community, hopefully with skills and insights that reduce their risk, or as angry as when they left? What was that meeting, that first meeting with him like? Do you remember it? I haven't thought about that for a long time. I, I, I do remember it. I mean, one of the, one of the first things that, that was striking about it is when you read about people who do these horrendous crimes, right? Your, your mind, no matter how long you, you do this work, your mind conjures up an image of what somebody's going to look like, right? And so into the interview room, I go waiting for him to be brought down by security, expecting to meet this monster. And there's this kind of pathetic looking, frail. Mouse of a man. Mouse of a man, right? And, and, and that happens repeatedly, right? That our, their, our image of the people who do these things is not accurate and, and is not who they are. Um, I was struck by, in the beginning, I was struck by the sheer intensity of his preoccupation into violence and his lack of awareness that this was anything that was problematic and how excited he was about this and, and willing to share it. And it was frightening. You have a project. This man is a going to get out and he's going to be released and you're charged with managing risk. In other words, you're charged with trying to make life as safe as possible for him and the people around him so he does not repeat. Absolutely. And the feeling that he... Uh, you know, had generated amongst people within the correctional institution was really that this was a fellow who was going to reoffend in a violent manner. It's, it wasn't a question of if, it was a matter of when. And a young psychologist said to me at a certain point, he said, why do you even bother seeing this man? What, what's the point of it? I mean, you know, the prognosis is so poor. And my response was that if we can engage him, if we can make a connection, if I can build a, a rapport that allows him, when he's in the community, to reach out instead of act out, then treatment has been a success. And all these years later, that's what's occurred. He has not repeated. He has not repeated. Have there been close calls? Well, there's been acting out, for sure. Um, there's been a, a variety of different things. Uh, early on uh, in his release... He made a number of threatening phone calls. He called the police and would make threatening comments to various police departments. He uh, called the psychiatric nurse at the Regional Psychiatric Center in Saskatoon, who was one of his treatment teams, and had made threats towards her. Uh, a couple of years later, we had an incident of him making a random phone call uh, to another country and, and making a threat towards somebody. Never any actual violent acting out, and for the last 12 years, there's been no incidents of acting out. And again, the reality is, for most of us who would say, why can't we throw these individuals in prison and throw away the key? The rule of law prevails here, and in this case, he was found guilty, not of second-degree murder, but of manslaughter. Served his sentence out in the community. Lawrence Ellerby and the handful of people across the country like him have to deal and manage risk. And it's a combination at times 
of uh, pharmaceutical constraints, but also uh, working with these offenders to understand where their triggers are and to minimize those triggers. And when they do go into and show those violence uh, rages, that there are people around them and they can also self-identify so they reach out and get the help they need before something else happens. You've got it down, don't you? <laughs> That's really what it's about. And, and uh, as I said before, most people return to the community. And, you know, and he's living in Winnipeg, is he not? He's living in Winnipeg, absolutely. He's living in Winnipeg. And as I said, I mean, there's been no serious incidents of, uh, of concern in terms of his behavior. There's been no involvement with uh, the criminal justice system for over 12 years now. Uh, you know, he has a, a, a functional life. Yet he's not rehabilitated, is he? It's an ongoing process, right? It's it's the level of intensity of the resources that were required to support him and to manage his risk have reduced dramatically, but there is still a big safety net around him. He's watched. He's watched. He lives in a supported housing with specific therapeutic and risk management supports. He works with what we call our community, community integration managers who do an enormously... Uh, important job in providing him practical life skill uh, support and um, monitoring his moods. And I, I see him now a half an hour a month from initially seeing him two to three times a week. Has family come to help him out? Because often you'll see family abandon these individuals. This is an interesting case in terms of family because when you go to the why, there was a lot of problems within the family. There was a lot of family dysfunction alcoholism, physical abuse, uh, emotional, psychological abuse, uh, suspected sexual abuse, abandonment by the mother being left with the alcoholic, violent father. And yet, at a certain point in his release, family came forward and began to play a role in his life and did the best that they could, and they became part of the treatment network. So we brought them into uh, the network of support. How old was... Darren, when he committed these crimes, Darren Williams Smith. He would have been in his early 20s. Were there signs as a teenager that he was like this? There were lots of signs. And I think that's an important thing. That What we see for a lot of people who are committing extremely serious offenses is if we stop to say, why? Where did this come from? We have to realize it just doesn't come out of the blue, that these things have a, have a progression. Um, he began acting out at a, a very early age. I mean, you have this, uh, you know, young boy who is born with an intellectual disability. He has uh, his social skills and adaptive functioning is very poor. He had a limp. He had a speech impediment. So from the onset, uh, he had a number of things going against Bullied, him. teased, Bullied. school system, not sure what to do with him. Absolutely. Ridiculed and rejected. And at a certain age he began to cope with the abuse at home and, and uh, the bullying and, and rejection at school through this inner fantasy life and acting out. And it became, you know, acting out aggressively at school, acting out sexually inappropriately at school. Um, there were signs there. In his mid-teens, he began to engage in uh, aggressive behavior towards animals. He, uh, child welfare was brought in because of his uh, behavior at school and he had respite workers and in one instance uh, he snuck into the respite workers room in the middle of the night and, and attempted to strangle her. So 
up and through his mid-teens, there were lots of lots of signs that this was a kid who was having significant problems. What do you do then with that 12 or 14-year-old where the system says we can't do much with them? Um, had he been treated properly, a young woman's life could have been saved. When you armchair quarterback this, what should have happened when he was young? Yeah, and this is this is a story we see over and over and over again. You know, I think we focus in our society, we have tended to focus on the back end, the punishment end, the get tough on crime end. And what we need to be doing is we need to be focusing on the front end, this get smart on crime, the prevention end. And we need to be enabling parents to understand what to do when they have a child who has behavioral problems. We have to help educators understand what are red flags, what are signs that there needs to be some intervention. We have to provide child welfare authorities, uh, law enforcement with supports and knowledge to be able to help them intervene in a helpful way. Could he have been medicated or taught how to deal with his issues at an early age? Again, we're armchair quarterbacking, I know, right? but, but I believe... There are ticking time uh, bombs out there that you hope that you can actually put the pin back in. Absolutely. And I believe that there's lots of crimes, this one and others like it, that if the appropriate interventions could have been put in place when somebody is 13, 14, 16, 17, could prevent the harm that happens down the road. Dr. Lawrence Ellerby writes a fascinating chapter about this individual and crime and disorders of the mind, true cases by forensic psychologists and psychiatrists. Richard Cloutier reports on 680 CJOB.